Hi, this is Elliot Fishman. Welcome to our latest talk. And this is going to be on 3D imaging. And this is a talk I've been putting together. I've given many times, but this is a brand new version. And, you know, when we record a, a lecture, it's anywhere between two to maybe five, six weeks till you hear the lecture, right? Because we try to plan in advance. So I'm just going to give you a hint to tell you what day I recorded this. And I'm going to get the Beatles to help me out. Very famous guitar rift from Here Comes the Sun, George Harrison on lead vocals. Okay, you got it. I'm recording it in about 30 minutes Baltimore time. The top eclipse will be happening, and I'm sitting here lecturing. There's something wrong with this picture. Anyway, 3D imaging. Pearls, pitfalls, and opportunities, and I focus on the opportunities. Role of 3D imaging, optimizing detection of disease, defining extent, patient management decisions, optimal treatment planning and surgery, for example. And it's interesting, I thought about this, but now with the ACR speaking about value over volume imaging, that's what we're doing. We're adding value, not just simply adding volume. So perhaps this will move 3D forward. Now, we know that when you look at images, you need to look at everything. Axials are the beginning, the multiplanars, the 3D. And we can talk about different ways of doing 3D, whether it's like by us, where the radiologist does it, versus the technologist, versus 3D labs, or any combination of the above. But it's something that you need to figure out what works best in your environment. It needs to be something that's planned and is proactive. We know that volume imaging requires volume visualization. And in the past, perhaps you can argue 3D wasn't that good because the CT data sets were not that good. Now with isotropic data sets, we know that there's so much information in the data set that we need to figure out a better way of understanding what's in the data set, and that is really 3D visualization. And perhaps 3D is a bad term. Perhaps we should focus on the term visualization, which is increases our ability to really understand a data set, to perceive features which are hidden, but nevertheless are critical for diagnosis and exploration. Again, all very important. And I always like to show a few classic cases, including this one, which shows this little dot, and make the point that that could be a small node, a small vessel, could be almost anything. But in the volume, instead of looking at a slice, you look at thousands of slices together, and you recognize that it's the patient's left gonadal vein, which is a key landmark if you're doing a laparoscopic left nephrectomy. It's a structure that's two to three millimeters in size. It's seen on almost every CT scan. But on axial imaging, it's hard to recognize but in volume, in this case volume rendering, it's very easy to recognize and very easy to see. So this does make the point, this information, the data, that we understand better in 3D. Or this case, which I've shown before, of Crohn's with thickening of the small bowel seen on the axial imaging. And the coronals give you a better look at the extent of the bowel involvement and perhaps give you a better visualization of the mesentery. But then the 3D MIP images really show you the mesenteric vessels well 
and the vasorecta and the fact you're dealing with active disease because of the prominent vasorecta. And again, MIP imaging is a projection technique. It doesn't show you the bowel well, but that same data said, looking at the volume rendering, I now see the mesenteric vessels. I now see the uh, diffuse thickening of the, of the bowel, and I see the entire process. And remember, the images here are the same images I showed you from the axials. But instead of looking at thousands of slices, I'm looking at the volume. For the referring clinician, there's more information in the volume. For the radiologist, there's more information in the volume than it is scrolling through those individual slices. Or in this case, where you can see what perhaps looks like a pancreatic mass, but then you look at it on 3D and you realize this vascular lesion is not in the pancreas, but it's actually in the duodenum. And you can see the vessel feeding it, and this was a GIST tumor. Now, when you look at 3D imaging, you realize that so much has changed from hardware to software, from the days of digital equipment to Pixar to Next to the greatness of silicon graphics to special purpose boards to where now NVIDIA rules with special purpose boards and you can do many things on your iPhone or iPad. We can look at the images and they tell a story because the images... If you're good, that's a hip and a pelvis. And those are the first Lucasfilms or Pixar images. It was unbelievable when they came out, but one would have to say, gee, I don't know. But here we had RGB. We could tell soft tissue from fat, from bone. And this idea about this volume rendering was one of the other big things Pixar had. And although Pixar computers are sitting in museums or on my wall, the software, the guidance, the theory is alive and well. And so whether you're in 1988 doing four millimeter thick sections every three millimeters showing muscle and bone or doing a whole body, which was a cadaver, taking seven hours to acquire and then multiple days to process, we can do it in a matter of seconds these days. And you realize when the data sets improve, you can see the detail of dilated bronchial arteries coming off the aorta or the prominent gonadal veins in this patient with pelvic congestion syndrome or looking at not just the images on axial plane or looking at static images but looking at this patient with a pseudoaneurysm in the ascending aorta we very nicely can watch the motion of the pseudoaneurysm and whether using black or white or color you can see great detail and then also recognizing this example where there's a filling defect seen by the aortic valve leaflets. And as you look at the 4D motion, you can see it's coming off one of the cusps. This is a papillary fibroelastoma. And you can manipulate the data sets as you watch them move and the valve opening and closing. And you can see the similar findings when you go to a negative display. And again, very impressive, showing you that polypoid mass that arises off the valve leaflet. Just a beautiful example of the details CT can give. Now, I mentioned the processing has gone from hardware and software to hardware and software, but on a different scale. We talk now about server-side rendering and post-processing, where the images are seen on iPhones or iPads or the equivalent. 
and the processing is done remotely using special purpose boards like NVIDIA boards. The fact that this is a very seamless operation, the fact that you can maintain confidentiality because the information is not stored on your device, but it's stored remotely and only viewed on your device. And the quality of looking on this iPad at the patient's hepatic mass with focal nodular hyperplasia, or looking at this iPad of a runoff study, where you can see the vessels or the bone subtraction from a dual energy study, or again, looking at a large left renal cell carcinoma with neovascularity spread into the perirenal soft tissues and showing you not only the multiplanar coronal and sagittal, but also taking you into the 3D imaging. The ability to create real-time 3D images is indeed a possibility and something we routinely do. Now, I mentioned that hardware and software need to be integrated. So this idea about volume rendering, which has lasted for three decades, it has stood the test of time because it was different. It enabled you to create images that kept all the information. It became an important tool. You went from binary classification to volume rendering. It was very, very critical and allowed us to become a valuable resource in terms of patient management. Now, I will admit, I often will describe and will say that we thought things would pick up a lot faster. This article in 91, State of the Art Radiology, talking about how we enter the 90s, 3D will become routine, did not take place. And I wrote an article 15 years later in Radiographics and predicting within a few years CT imaging will no longer become routine with 3D, but a part of routine cases. And now fast forward 11 years and things have not changed. And we wrote that in 2012 and we're writing it in 2017 and 2018. The things I will admit are much slower than they thought they were going to be, but they are moving along. Now, when I speak about volume rendering, it's important to recognize the rendering technique is the most important technical determinant of 3D image quality. And that assumes a good data set has been acquired. The rendering technique is a computer algorithm used to transform axial slices into 3D imaging. When you do multiplanar, you're creating set planes from the data set, typically coronal and sagittal, but also oblique and curved planar. And of course, the NPR is dependent on the quality of the initial data set. That's true with multiplanar or 3D. And so once we went to isotropic data sets, it became excellent. We talk about rendering as two different types, the classic binary rendering and then the 3D volume rendering. We talk about percentage classification with volume rendering. And so when we were able to start doing volume rendering, we recognized the ability to do color. We recognized the ability to show tendons and muscle and skin, make things more or less opa opaque to show specifically what we want to see. And so not only can we show different structures, but it'll be us, up to us to choose what we wanted to show. Volume rendering was this percentage classification scheme, and it assumed that a voxel can contain more than one tissue type. And that's why it was so much better than binary classification, where you either was or you weren't. A voxel was bone or was not bone. 
Shades of gray were not possible. And the volume rendering technique is described by Drebin and Lauren Carpenter and Pat Hanrahan implemented a technique with a probabilistic classification. You're all familiar with the trapezoids, hopefully the assignment of different values to the different soft tissues and then getting between those various soft tissues. We talk about adjusting trapezoids in real time, assigning color and transparency. Each voxel gets a color and transparency by taking a weighted sum of the percentage of each tissue type within that voxel. And then we create an image by simulating rays of light through the volume and then project it on the computer screen. Now, one of the challenges, of course, with volume rendering is that you need to be able to uh, adjust things on the fly. There's an infinite number of values you can use. Now, I will admit that I do presets and I modify from there. But again, it can be a challenge to you if you've not done volume rendering or you've not used a certain system to be really accurate. Now, we talk about things. So, for example, volume rendering. Here's an example of a patient where if you scroll through the data set, you're able to see variations where the left main coronary artery is coming off the right cusp. And as you reconstruct that, you can see beautifully in 3D that process where you can see the right cusp and you see the right coronary and then you see the left coronary. And again, you can see here, not only am I showing you this in the right on volume rendering, but I'm able to interact with those images and here I'm showing you again a set of images showing you with the motion present, the beating heart, showing you that variation where the uh, left coronary is coming off the right. And then here it is just one more time showing you the MIP image of that. And then I can adjust the MIP. So again, one thing hopefully you, you, you understand is that it's not just shooting static 3D images that's ideal to me. It's being able for me to go into the data set and choose the plane and perspective I want. I always can choose the best plane and perspective by going through the data set. It's hard to determine in advance what the best plane and perspective is going to be. Then we talk about MIP, which is a technique that falls between shaded surface and volume rendering. Basically what you're doing is you're looking at a ray of light showing you the brightest structures. One of the things that's good about MIP, of course, is that it's a little bit less dependent on the uh, user. And also, where volume rendering will vary from different manufacturer, MIP tends to be the same. It shows you the brightest structures. Now, one thing about MIP is you adjust the slab thickness. The thicker the slab, the more in the data set, sometimes is too much. But if you don't do the slab thick enough, there may be too little. Here's a good example of showing you a sliding MIPS of the right coronary artery, perfectly visualized. But if I go back to the data set and use one millimeter or five millimeter slabs, you see only a part of it. And if I go from one to 10, you see a bit more, but not all that much. And from 10 to 20, a bit more. And 10 to 30, you can see the entire vessel. So again, uh, it's very important to recognize the interactivity and choosing the right slab. We talk about MIP as a way of looking at vessels. So when I do automatic bone removal with dual energy data sets, you can get very nice views of the carotids and circle of Willis. We can look very nicely at the liver and then create images which show this vascular mass. 
which is focal nodular hyperplasia, as we scroll through the mass, you begin to see the feeding vessel, the very bright tumor, but only as bright as the aorta, not a hepatoma, and the stellate scar on the coronal view, nicely shown. And then on uh, this set of images, the MIP, you see the feeding vessel of the hepatic artery, you see the extent of the vascularity, you see the entire mass. So again, visualization, sometimes volume is better, sometimes MIP adds a lot. We routinely do both of them. Now, you want to be careful with MIP because the projection technique, you can make mistakes. So if I ask you in this renal donor how many renal arteries there are, whether it's MIP or volume rendering, there are two renal arteries. If I then ask you where's the renal vein, you look at the two images, the MIP, it's retroaortic, and the... Uh, volume rendering, it's pre-aortic. Something's wrong, both of these can't be right. Another example, volume rendering versus MIP. On the volume rendering, pre-aortic renal vein, on the left. On the MIP, it's retroaortic. What's the reason? What's the problem here? Well, here's the problem. With MIP, the brightest voxels always appear, appear to be out in front, even if they're behind other structures. So the aorta is always brightest because of arterial phase, and so it appears to be closer and the veins posterior. With MIP, the brightest voxels always obscure all of the structures behind them or in front of them. So it's important to recognize MIP creates certain potential problems. And that's something that becomes very, very important as we choose rendering techniques. And we'll go through that in more detail. Now, one of the other things we do look at is looking at post-processing tools. And one of the key things in terms of 3D mipping is, or 3D volume rendering, is the correct tools. And there are a number of tools from bone editing to vascular segmentation, to coronary arteries, to fly-throughs for virtual colonoscopy, to CAD and the like. And it's very important to recognize that these become very important tools in your practice and you need to know how to use them. Something as simple as automated bone removal. And here's just a nice example. You can see the ribs in place. And as a cirrhotic patient, we want to get the ribs out of there. Here it is on portal vein with varices. Uh, you can see the large gastric varices. But you see the ribs kind of obscure parts of the liver. Well, we use the computer to take away the bone and now look at the portal vein, SMV, splenic vein, and all the collaterals. You see everything, but nothing is obscured by the presence of the bone. And that's how you need to look at these studies. You need to do it the correct way. And now with bone removal, it's really even better with dual energy. Dual energy allows you to remove bone based on the different uh, elements. So calcium and uh, iodine are able to be separated and so you can get beautiful looks at the vessels. Here's a great bypass graft off the aorta down to the left external iliac. And bone removal with dual energy with these techniques is much more accurate and faster. Here's one showing you the skull and brain. And look how nicely it looks like a classic angiogram. And whether you're doing that or the carotids, you see an artifact by the right um, a carotid artery, and that's just simply due to the very dense contrast causing a dropout in the data set, something you need to recognize. So it's very important to recognize how you do these studies. You need to recognize the pitfalls. So in this case, they look like the left, um, the right subclavian 
I mean, the right carotid proximally was occluded, but you can see it's simply artifact and everything is widely patent. Now, we also know that the processes we use need to be streamlined and optimized. And perhaps let me speak about that as we talk about templates in the next talk. So let's take a five minute break and we'll come right back. Bye.